0: Welcome to this Start Somewhere for Mary Claire podcast, hosted by me, Sarah Vaughan, Global Chief Purpose and Sustainability Advisor for Mary Claire. My guest this week is someone I just love. She's my very dear friend, who I haven't seen for ages in the flesh. Uh, And she's also the founder of DRK Beauty, aka Dark Beauty, the amazing and just such special person, Wilma Mae Baster.
1: How are you? How are Yay. you? Love? I, miss you. <laughs> I miss you too. It's so wonderful to see your smiling face. God, I don't think you haven't changed in all the years. We have known each other for more than 20 years. And oh my God, you, you literally look like the same Sarah that I started work with many years ago. So it's oh. wonderful to see you. Beauty. Bless
0: you, bless you. I, I I'm very blessed with great genes from from, from, from my mother, I think. And my father, actually, you know, so <laughs> fairly, fairly resilient. And that, that's my face yoga. We'll talk about that
1: later. Uh, oh, <laughs> I need to know about that. Yes, face yoga.
0: <laughs> <laughs> face yoga and Kobe Kobe face massage It's amazing. Uh-huh. Mm. Anyway, this isn't about me. This is all about you. <laughs> so, Wilma, tell us how you got started in life. Where did you grow up? You know, what
1: were your kind of early
0: inferences in life?
1: Sure. Um, So I'm originally from uh, just as I was born just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania um, in the late 60s. And um, my mother had four children. I'm the only girl, um, second youngest. And my mother, and and this is kind of for me, really a big part of my story, my trajectory. Uh, My mother was born in Chester, Pennsylvania, where I was born. And Chester is a a historically Black area, a historically depressed area outside of Philadelphia. Uh, My mother grew up in a household with two other brothers by different fathers, and her mother didn't take care of her. She was taken care of by her grandmother, Mm -hmm. who also ran a brothel and a gambling den. And so, you know, my mother had no role models, right? She had no one to look up to. We didn't have a culture of, you know, superstars that were, you know, providing them with hope that they can make life the way that they wanted to. But my mother was really bright. She was smart. And she always really believed in education. And somehow she came into this world with that belief system because it certainly didn't come from her immediate family. And uh, she miraculously was accepted into Penn State University in the 1940s, which was almost wow. unheard of for a black That's woman. Amazing! Gosh. And then she went to study abroad in Denmark, which again was probably <laughs> she's probably like of uh, maybe one or two in history that di- in that time period that did any kind of study abroad. So for my mother, both education and travel were very, very important to her. And when we were born, my mother really wanted us to have an education. And so she took the the almost unprecedented step, um, especially around that time, to move us out of Chester and into this affluent white suburb of Philadelphia, which co- the towns are collectively referred to as the main line. So we initially grew up in Devon, Pennsylvania, and then Villanova, which has a famous university. And so I grew up in this space where Uh, my mother really believed in education. She believed in travel. She had us traveling abroad from an early age. Not that she could afford it, but she made sure she got us out by hook or by crook. And she also believed in the independence of women, right? My parents, while while they remained married, they both led very separate lives. And my mother always seemed to be self-empowered. Like she didn't wait for someone to empower her. And I think part of it is like, you know, definitely a black woman thing right we she had to create a path for herself as an individual as a human soul she had to be a mother she was the pretty much the main breadwinner um and my father did his life she did hers and she also became this amazing spiritual teacher uh, during uh, that time and taught people around the world um and so i just had this kind of you know amazing human being as a mother who really inspired me to think about how I can live my life, right? And so for me, I was always wanting to please my mother. And as a teenager in high school, I had the opportunity to study abroad uh, in France for a year. And, you know, she encouraged me to do it. And I was like, yeah, that'll make my mom happy. And also, I'll get to learn another language because I was terrible at French at that time. And so I was accepted to study abroad for a year in a small town in France called saint marcellin And I lived with a French family and they are still in my life today. Their daughter went to live with my family. Oh, well, wow, she... you did
0: it like a proper exchange.
1: Proper exchange. And Sandrine wow. is still, I con- we consider each other sisters. And she was my maid of honor when Victor and I got married. And so I, it changed my life because I realized why I never felt like I fit in when I Mm -hmm. went to France, because there no one cared about the color of my skin. No one cared. I mean, they loved the fact that I was black because they were interested in black culture, like really did. It was like one of the first times people asked me, what was my experience like as a black woman? And it was the first time I had to really consider it. I had all these different touch points of things that made me feel awkward, uh, unwelcome, not belong, not belonging. Mm -hmm. And And I didn't feel like I fit into either black culture, right? Because oftentimes the black girls would say that I was too white
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: um, I didn't fit into white culture. So I didn't have a place. I didn't know where I fit in. And I certainly didn't have a sense of belonging, but in France, I did. Everyone embraced me and I'm in a little village, right? And there's no television, no shopping (laughs) mall. Do you know what I mean? And so that kind of made me think like, okay, Now I understand what's been going on. And as soon as I finished high school, I got the hell out of there, went Mm. to New York, went to NYU, lived this amazing life for four years. It was rough back in the 80s in New York, but I always knew that Europe felt, I felt at home in Europe. And that's when I, you know, I got the opportunity to study abroad in England um, for three months. And that was it. Three months turned into 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's hilarious, isn't it? Three months turned into 30 years. I mean, wow. (laughs) And then it was it. And so I never thought I would go back to America because, you know, I started off in PR and um, as an intern and I was really hardworking. And I had that sort of I can testify to that. Yeah. You could testify to that. And I I had that sort of American work ethic. And I was like, so I I was always surprised that I was always the first one in the office and the last one out. Because like Brits were like, We're going down to the pub. We're out. We don't start till 10. We leave at six. And I'm like, but there's still work to do. I'm like, but this is how you if you're if you're like a young one trying to climb up the ladder. You come in early, you stay late. That was my mindset, right? That's what happens, right? I'm not saying that's healthy, <laughs> but... None of us all right. <laughs> right? But, you know, that actually, that helped me to move forward almost like too quickly mm. in the profession because I actually was demonstrably working harder than other people. Um, that, I think that propelled me forward and I was hired... And before I had any real training or mentorship in the, you know, the craft of PR um, um, and any of the nuances, all of a sudden I'm trying to like wing it all for, for many years. Um, And then ultimately, as we all know, PR, you know, is, you know, stressful (laughs) and it burns people out and um, it, it burned me out. Um, I think after in total, About thirteen years in PR, and I really felt—I, you know—I always had the dream of being an entrepreneur, and I had several failed attempts, which didn't dampen my spirit. And as you know, you worked on my first startup, and uh, (laughs) which is amazing. (laughs) It's funny because you know that was social media before social media existed. Yeah, it was it really was yeah and i had you know it was like i felt like it was like you and me in the trenches and we you know and and by the way it was called the gathering club and it i as a newly divorced 30 something i thought well how do i make new friends i don't hang out in bars and nightclubs and i didn't i don't have university friends because i didn't go to university here or school friends i had friends i made in pr but i was no longer in that profession so how do i meet people without it being a bit sketchy and Um, I, so I created the gathering club, which was once a month, I hosted a cocktail party somewhere in London so that our members, they paid like, I don't know, 500 quid a year. Um, and they'd get to go to 12 cocktail parties a year, meet other members. And then that was how they met new people that they could then go onto our website and create their own dinner party with their own friends and invite other members of the gathering club to their own circle and vice versa. So you start to widen your circle of friends. In the real world, right? But still, leveraging technology. Yeah, it was so cool. But then the funny thing is, is like I didn't know how to grow a business. I didn't know how. This is way before you could even, you know, barely the internet was working around that time, and um, there certainly wasn't any startup community in the UK at that time, especially for a black woman, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, if you had new bankers, and you know, you had kind of gone to some private school, you might know friends that might put money into your business and you were given the benefit of the doubt because you might be white or accomplished or something like that. But there wasn't a startup culture that you have a good idea and you can actually make it work and pull it things together. So I found it really difficult to grow the business. And I had no, like I said, no mentors. So that didn't last. And I went back into something I loved, which is vintage. And, um, I, I fell in love with vintage fashion and, um, and that kind of became my another my other chapter of being a vintage fashion dealer for many years. Yeah, amazing.
0: I mean, look, I mean, look, like you're always so ahead of the time, right? I mean, <laughs> just extraordinary. Like like developing the internet and always kind of like social gatherings before they even came about, and then like into vintage and kind of resale, like long before it's become mainstream, which is happening yeah. now. I mean, just just yeah. astonishing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Amazing. And that was, that was, you know, and, you know, it's kind of, it's not, it's not super cute to be ahead of your time all the time. <laughs> because I'd like to actually do something that really is of the moment, which I think I'm now doing. The sad
0: truth is that even now, if you were a female founder of a, like a tech business, you would still be struggling to find financing. I mean, that sadly is, is
1: still a massive, massive issue. So, you it, know, if- it is massive. And I'll tell you more about that, too, because um, I've been doing that now for the last four years. And um, again, even though there's startup culture and even though there's lots of folks talking about we're helping black women, et cetera, there's still there's a lot of it's performative. And um, but it's okay because, you know, I I learned from the best. I learned from the most resilient woman. And, you know, she never gave up. So I'm I'm not giving up. But you know? So I am. And the funny thing is is that I look back on so many of these things that I've done and I'm, I'm proud of myself, right? I'm proud of myself that I, I, I took the leap of faith in myself and I learned a hell of a lot. And a lot of the things that I did and I learned over the years serve me now. And I also truly believe that the path that one takes in life is, even if something's not successful, it's huge learnings and might be setting you up and putting you on the path that you can't see what the result's supposed to be.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I, 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 so I so agree with that. So, tell us, how did you find your purpose? You know what? You know, was it a road to Damascus experience, or, 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 or was it more sort of gradual?
1: Wow. So um, I think initially I've always just, I really believe and have believed that I am an entrepreneur at heart. I wanted to prove to myself that I could create a business that could scale. So that's always been in in some ways been my driving purpose. And then infuse that with passion. I didn't grow into this world with a knowledge of like I want to be a doctor or a filmmaker, or I didn't know what I wanted to be. I kind of just rolled in from one thing to the next. I I didn't have that gift of knowing what my true purpose was. And so the only thing I knew is I want to build a business. And I didn't go to business school. I did. I actually studied business at NYU, but it was just before the internet boom. So everything I learned is of no value now. <laughs> so I mean, it wasn't really, you know, a business degree, and I didn't go to graduate school because I got into PR, and that became my career. Um, so I think around about four years ago, I, I felt. Um, so two things happened. Two things happened about ten or eleven years ago. Uh, I had I had remarried, and uh, my husband has three children. Uh, I have two. And this whole blended family thing um, was really tricky and difficult and uh, at times toxic. And I wasn't prepared for it. And I thought, me, I'm a tough Black woman. I can pretty much handle anything. If I could handle PR, I can handle this. If I can handle the tabloid media and celebrities, I can handle this. And uh, But I couldn't. And I didn't mm-hmm. know that. And I gradually started to spiral down and down and down. And I knew nothing of mental health. I mm. knew nothing of depression. Depression was for white folks. Therapy mm. was for white <laughs> folks, Yeah, not for a black woman. Now, you know, again, a mother, when I remember as a teenager, and I said to her once, I feel faint. And she looked at me with her eyebrows furrowed and said, black people don't faint, girl, get your behind up there. <laughs> it's so Faint. You know what, it's get out of here. <laughs> so that, and you go, oh, okay, great. Right. And you kind of pull yourself together and you're like, okay, I'm fine. And so, you know, that was like yeah. mental health wasn't really something that, um you know, it, or you get the spiritual bypassing, which is, oh, you can go and pray it away.
0: Oh, you know? yes.
1: Yes. Right. Talk to Jesus. And I didn't have that in my family, but I know that's very prevalent in many, many families. And so I didn't know that I was spiraling downwards, right? I always thought I Mm -hmm. have to present this Wilma's got her shit together situation. And I knew that I didn't. And I didn't have anyone to talk to because I didn't know what was happening to me. And I think the friends that I had at the time, many of them just thought I was bitching and moaning. And I just didn't know how to handle the situation. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have anyone and therapy definitely didn't seem like an option to me because I thought, what are they going to be able to tell me? Like, Mm -hmm. how are they going to help me through this? Like, I couldn't understand how that could help. And so I ended up spiraling so far down that I got to the point where uh, I was so, I couldn't get out of bed. Like I, my, Mm -hmm. my brain couldn't tell my body to physically move.
0: Wow. And
1: I had the I think like the day before, I had just could because my brain stopped being able to understand the situation that I was in or how to resolve it or what it was like. I was like, I gotta go and I gotta take my babies with me. And I looked into a holiday inn and I cried all night. My children were freaked out. And the only thing I could do the next morning was wake up and I had a a, a friend of mine, Russell, and I just said, I can't get out of bed. And he just knew instinctively what to do. He found my therapist. I just started seeing a therapist a month earlier Mm -hmm. because I was in desperate. I didn't know what to do. And then um, she said, get her to the Capio. And he said, you have to go to some place called the Capio. I'm like, I have no idea what that is. He said, don't worry about it. I'm sending over your friend, Jill, because he wasn't in town. And she took me to the Capio, the Capio Nightingale Hospital. It was a psychiatric hospital. Wow. And as I sat on the side of the bed while they checked me in, the nurse asked me if I felt safe. I said, this mm-hmm. also looks like the holiday and so why wouldn't I feel safe? And <laughs> that's like, it, I yeah, duh, I feel safe. Like, I don't think I'm like in the middle of, you know, a high street or something out in the middle of the road at night. And that's when it dawned on me that I actually felt really safe emotionally. Mm. and. That's when I thought the light bulb went on. Oh my God, I've been living in an emotionally unsafe environment. That's why I mm-hmm. feel safe. I feel like these people are going to catch me. I can fall back for the first time. And I thought, what? I don't think I've ever felt safe. I don't think I've ever felt like someone's going to be able to catch me when I fall. Like I've never felt that I was important enough to catch. Wow. It's like a... <laughs> That's a realization. Yeah. And these people felt it was important enough to catch me. And that mm-hmm. moment was when I decided that I'm going full in. I'm going in for the healing. This is what I need, clearly. And I'm not going to worry about what people think about Wilma being locked up in a mental institution. Because that was the first thing You you go, oh, my God, people are going to find out. What are they going to think of me? I've cultivated this whole persona, the strong black woman. And at that moment, I went, I do not give a shit. They, they can knock themselves out with how they feel about me. That's their judgment. They can live with that. That's not even on me. I'm going in for the healing and I'm, di- I'm diving in. And uh, I ended up staying there for six weeks. And I made that really clear decision that I am no longer going to hold shame around this, I can't, I just physically cannot hold the shame because it doesn't serve a purpose. Mm. Like it, like what purpose does shame? I didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. And so I spent that six weeks there and then that began my sort of healing journey. And I started to explore other modalities because I believe that therapy is important but for me, I needed other modalities that had sense a sense of love. Mm-hmm. yeah, that was another discovery, and the clinical is it, it I know that's really good for some people to have that distance, but for me, I need to know that I'm working with someone who has love for me for sure, right? Yeah, yeah, so that I started this exploration of different um different things, the Hoffman process, which we both know, I know you know about Hoffman. Yeah. And uh reading a lot of Pema Chodron, listening to her audiobooks, Buddhist monk, and uh really delving into that philosophy. And so that became really the 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 uh, the small drop of where my purpose was going to lead me someday. Yeah because had I not been in a psychiatric clinic in London for six weeks, I would not be doing what I'm doing today. And so in many ways, I give thanks to the situation that put me there because I was still gonna thrive. And I like, again, I didn't give up on myself. I just knew I needed to have better tools and strategies for how to live fully. While I don't wish that on anyone to be in a psychiatric hospital, if you do end up there, embrace it because there is there is deep healing there The the, and and generally speaking people there want to be there to help you to heal and um and i'm still friends with some of the people i that i met in there today
0: that's so beautiful i love that i love that (laughs) and and you know and and you know i mean that kind of brings us to kind of how you're living your purpose now with with drk dark beauty so yes you know, please, please, will you, will you kind of share like <laughs> you know, where this extraordinary journey has led you to?
1: Yeah. So we, so I, four years ago, I decided to shut my vintage business down. I really felt um that through a series of circumstances and practitioners I've been working with that I knew that it was time for me to shift um into a new chapter. And I didn't know what that was. And I've learned over the years that when I start to experience any level of anxiety that it's my higher self trying to talk to me, so I usually just i do I, I hop in the shower and I listen right, and i don't and i let them i let the anxiety come through like it's a train coming into a station, and mm-hmm. so i um i I got the sense that it was time for a shift, and I didn't know what that shift was, but I knew to be open and so um again, it's a long story which I won't t- share everything here, but i um, I got, I had an epiphany that it was time to move back to America uh, around that time. And this was before I had come up with the idea for dark beauty. And anyone who knew me knew I was never moving back to America. I was like, why would I go back to a racist country? <laughs>
0: I know. I, I, I
1: remember this. I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> like, not, like, Wilma, you, you like what? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just like, yep. Um, and I literally gave That happened a a year before I moved. I had this epiphany. Told my husband, he's like, okay, can we talk about this? I said, sure, we can talk about it, but I'm still going back to America. I don't know why. I have no idea why I'm supposed to be back there because in theory, this was 2017. It was 2016. So we just had a a new uh, person in office uh, and that was a hot mess. And so that's why everyone's like, wait, wait, okay, are you okay, Wilma? Are you okay? So I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Anyway, over the next year, the idea for dark beauty had come to me and I started doing some more research into, I really wanted to reconnect with my heritage, with my culture that I kind of, in a sense, ran away from for many years because I didn't feel like I was allowed into it. And then I was like, wait a minute, I am a black woman. I come from a line of strong Black women. And just because I'm not in and of the culture, because I had my mother chose for us to be educated, doesn't mean I'm not a Black woman.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm going to claim that. I'm going to claim my heritage. Mm-hmm. And so I want to do, and I know that I've been seeing so many amazing women write about their experiences of being Black that I felt like maybe some things had changed from the time I left in the late eighties, early nineties. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, people were talking about having your natural hair and that if yeah. I want to wear a weave, I can wear a weave, but if I want to have my natural hair, I can have mine. I don't need anybody commenting on it. <laughs> <And> so <Nice. laughs> I was like, yeah. And so <laughs> I started kind of really like touching onto this thing and I thought, but still there are, problems and issues. And obviously, as you know, with having this background working with consumer brands, I always saw how consumer brands were really performative, how they didn't really understand, nor did they try to understand our, our culture. They approached it in this sort of monolithic way. And I was like, we can do better than this. And there's a different way. So the original idea for Dark Beauty was that we were going to have this platform where women of color could find their tribes, the people that are doing the things they're interested in. And we could work with brands to bed themselves in and tribes for, um, and learn about these tribes and support these, these, these many communities in more ways than one, rather than market to them. That was the original idea. And then, um, I moved to New York in 2017 to start building this, spent several years getting all the pieces together and doing the startup thing and trying to get funding, which didn't work. And, you know, me and Victor, you know, did the first you know, funding round, we're friends and family, Mm -hmm. because I don't have Mm -hmm. friends and family that have money. And, um, and then we were due to do our soft launch in November 2019, which we did, we just started with a simple blog and Instagram account. And then a few months later, COVID happened and lockdown happened. And the whole idea, like no one was, no one cared about how consumer brands were going to support women of color. We were just trying to stay alive. Yeah. And everybody was frightened. And mm-hmm. I said to my team at that time, I said, okay, look, we need to just start doing some content because we don't know what was happening from day to day. Like right. every day felt like there was like a new shift and a new information and people were scared and people were baking bread and people were, and, and, and my youngest brother died just before lockdown and we didn't get a funeral. I
0: I didn't know. I'm so sorry, love. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Thank you. He, he, he was, he wasn't well, Mm. but it was unexpected. And, Mm. uh, we were about 10 days, 10 days out from lockdown. And we were scrambling to put a funeral together. He worked in the music business. So there were a lot of people that were like, okay, we're going to bring this person into, we're going to create this big, huge event. And then we had to shut it down. We couldn't do it. And it wasn't responsible to do it. So I didn't have really a chance to grieve. And I went, we went into lockdown. I was like, well, I haven't worked all these years for my business to just go to nothing. Right. And so I said, we got to figure out what we're doing here. So we just started putting out content you know, just that was supportive as much as we could be. And then one morning, I woke up with a panic attack. And I don't get them that often. But when I do, again, I listened to my higher self, what's going on, Hopped in the shower. And I said, no one's talking about how this virus is going to impact black and brown communities yet. Right? All we knew at that time was this was going to affect people with underlying conditions, health conditions. Mm -hmm. And like, translate like that to black and brown people and mm-hmm. then i got in the shower and for me as we all know now mental health is important to me and i thought well if we're about to be, have this is going to this is going to hit us hard the mental health is going to be even more difficult because yep. for so many reasons so I, it came to me in a clear message in the shower you should give away free therapy and i was like wait what <laughs> like <laughs> first of all I have spent 30 years on the NHS, free healthcare. Like, I don't even know how to navigate the American healthcare system. And as I spoke to people, they don't know how to navigate the healthcare system in this country. And how do I give away free therapy? But it was clear as day. I got out of the shower. I talked to my then, I called my then co-founder and said, we have to give away, we have to do something tangible for our community right now. And we should give away free therapy. She's like, wait, what? And wait, wait, what? That's not like kind of what we were meant to be doing. I said, I know, but we have to be nimble and we have to do something that's tangible for our community right now. That to me feels like the most important thing to do. And I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide the company into. two. You're going to manage content. I had a new intern start with me from Columbia. She's a grad student at Columbia and uh, Shara started with me. And um, I said, Shara, you and I are going to figure out how to give away free therapy. And we got on the phone with clinicians. We were talking to people about 10 hours a day, almost seven days a week at that time. And I I went into overworking mode again because everything seemed very urgent. And um, we very quickly discovered that uh, therapists usually donate about 20 hours a year pro bono. So I said, can Mm -hmm. you give me like 10 of those hours? First therapist said, of course. And then two more said yes. And then five. And then they told their friends. And I had my developers build a directory on our blog, and we started Dark Beauty Healing as a free therapy initiative for women of color on May the 15th, 2020. And 10 days later, George Floyd was murdered. Yeah, And then it went sky high. We had therapists from all over the country donating hours. By July of 2020, we had over 2,000 hours of free therapy. That we were giving away. And we had more than 120 clinicians, licensed clinicians in our network. And we cover about 60% of America. So we're now one of the leading free resources for mental health, for therapy in America for people of color. So, yeah. Which
0: is amazing. I mean, you brought tears to my eyes. I'm so <laughs> proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank oh, you. Man. That means a lot. It's, it's just astonishing, you know, kind of what, what, what you've
1: done. <laughs> it's just breathtaking. It was a, it was, and it was stressful. There's no doubt about it. There was no, no work-life balance last summer. It was listening in my apartment in Brooklyn. I'm so glad my husband was with me because on lockdown, because it was really, it, I literally, the month of June, I cried. Not only did I cry every single day of the month, I cried when I woke up. I cried on Zoom calls. I, I, I started meetings with, I may cry on this call, but I can do business and cry at the same time. And they were like, "Got we gotcha, we got it. I was ugly crying in the street with my dog, with my mask. And people kind of looked at me like, we get it. We understand why you're crying. There were no strange looks. And then yeah. I cried myself to sleep. In my yeah. husband's arms every single night, and I was like, "It's okay. I can cry. I can get up and do the work, but I'm gonna cry it out. I'm gonna keep it, let it, let it flow." And we we somehow got through the month. We got through the summer, and um, we had a lot of celebrity support. Uh, ironically, the actress Cynthia Arivo discovered us through friends of my my co-founder, and she didn't know that I was behind the business, and, and my co-founder, she reached out to my co-founder and she said, you know, Wilma started this business and started this. And it wasn't a business, it was was an initiative. And she said, you know, this is started Mm. by Wilma. She said, what? And I used to dress Cynthia Arrivo when I was a vintage fashion dealer.
0: Oh my goodness. For for two
1: years before anyone knew who she was because the only way I was going to get publicity for my vintage business was if I dressed up and coming actresses. I told all the agents in London, if the big designers don't dress your actresses, send them to me, I'll dress them. So a lot of the women that I used to dress are household names now and Cynthia is one of them. And she, we hopped on a Zoom call and we both burst into tears. We were like, wow, this is a full circle moment right here. And she donated $25,000 to our initiative oh. and she
0: Wow, how generous is her, lovely.
1: Yeah, and she partnered with us and we did a fundraising event together and so she helped to really put us on the map and um so you know when I when I, I was talking about you don't know what parts of your journey are going to be part of your purpose you know yeah. yes, and everyone sorry. goes like you haven't followed like a traditional like professional path. Yeah, but if I hadn't Done what I did with vintage, I'd never would have met Cynthia Revo if I hadn't been in a psychiatric clinic. I wouldn't be able to be in a position to understand and help people today. If I hadn't done PR, right? If I hadn't done PR, I wouldn't know how to actually raise awareness of what I'm what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So they all kind of fed into this in a beautiful way, and you know, I'm you know we've pivoted the business now to mental health and well being, and 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 that is I now feel like I finally stepped into my the purpose of my life
0: yeah yeah oh and boy have you and and (laughs) oh i am just I I don't know I'm so moved and I'm so proud of you and I I (laughs) love you so much and thank you for for, for doing this it's just so important the work you're doing and sorry I'm going to cry now Uh, (laughs) but you know as you know this kind of stage and proceedings um, I always ask, you know, what are your top tips for people who want to start somewhere? So, you know, <laughs> go for it. The floor is yours.
1: <laughs> my top tips. So basically, the thing that allowed me to, I think, ultimately find my purpose is learning how to be still, not just not just for mindfulness, but learning how to be still and cultivating that however you see fit. Mine was through meditation initially, um, is learning how to listen to your higher self. Uh, when you stop that chattering conscious mind, not stop it, let's say just quiet that mind down. It allows for you to start to understand that this higher, con- higher superconsciousness consciousness has an overview of things that you down here on this level, the level of the mundane, can't always see. Mm-hmm. and when when you're in that space consistently you then hear the messages that pull you or push you or inspire you to go in a direction of your your high heart yeah right not a place from fear and right. it, it's the fear that drives many of us to make decisions that have long long-term negative impacts on us yes And so I, after being in the hospital for so many years, I did a lot of work on cultivating that higher self and it's work. There's no two ways about it. There's no part of being human that's, that's meant to be easy or is easy. And, Mm. um, but I found that after doing a lot of this kind of work on self, my life did transform, uh, my life as me as a single soul, but also the life. around me, the family, my marriage, my relationship with my stepchildren, my relationship with my own children. And um, it allowed me to get out of the way of a lot of things. So that's my my top tip is just cultivate your um, quieting that mind and connecting to your higher self. So then you can also hear the things that that without fear, that will help you kind of uh, direct your path towards your true purpose.
0: I feel a book coming on Wilma, but you know, I really do No, Oh Lord, no. Okay.
1: I know I say that. I said for several years, I wasn't doing a podcast and I just launched my own podcast. Yes. So <laughs> and I know I
0: was going to say, so, you know, if people want to find out more about you and dark beauty, um, where do they go? the podcast being the first place. I, I imagine. Podcast.
1: We, <laughs> yeah. we just launched um, our second episode. And the idea of our podcast is that we're exploring uh, the different modalities that women of color can tap into to start to build their own wellness toolkit and team. Um, I think it's really important that um, we take ownership of our healing. Healing is our birthright. But where do we start to to find out how do we heal, right? There are a lot of different things that are in there, out there in the world. So we're starting to explore those, sharing the ones that I've know, that I know personally, and interviewing um, the therapists in our network uh, because they are amazing too. Our therapists. This is the other thing I've discovered. Our therapists rock, man. They like are not just therapists; they do a whole bunch of other things. So I'm discovering all of those. So the podcast explores that. We have our Instagram, which is at This Is DRK Beauty, um, and uh, our website, which hopefully will be revamped this year, is uh, This Is drkbeauty.com. And, and, uh, and the name of the, yeah.
0: the podcast and the platforms they can find Oh,
1: it- sorry. The podcast is called uh, DRK Beauty: The Healing Home. And you can find it wherever you find your podcasts on uh, iTunes or um, Apple Podcast. On um, what do we have? Spotify and all of the other things. We're out. We're on all of them. Amazing. uh, We yeah. So there you go. That's me.
0: Oh, Wilma, thank you so much. you know I you just moved me so much I mean you know that your journey has not been easy but your resilience and fortitude and inspiration is always incredible and and you know thank you for everything you're doing in the world it's it's just uh, extraordinary
1: can I just say first of all thank you and I am so glad that you and we are in each other's lives still after Mm -hmm. all these years and I love I love your journey as well you're an amazing soul I love you bless you I love you too